Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you guys. If we haven't met, my name is Brian. I'm the director of worship and creative arts here at Reality Ventura. So if you've been uh, here at any point over the past year, you know that we are in the middle of a slow and methodical excavation of the book of Ephesians. Some of you are like, please, when are we going to get out of Ephesians? And the answer is, not yet. But over the past year, we've been uh, unearthing and digging up truths from Paul's letter to the Ephesians about who we are as a child of the king, and then who we are as a family in his kingdom. This morning, like Chad said, we are in Ephesians chapter 4. For context, this morning I'm going to be reading from verse 17, but we're going to be focusing most of our attention on verses 20 through 24. I'll be reading uh, and teaching from the HCSB translation today. The title of our sermon this morning is Garments of Glory. Ephesians 4, 17, this is Paul writing to the Lord's church in Ephesus. He says, Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Here's our verse this morning. But that is not how you learned about the Messiah, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him because the truth is in Jesus. You took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Church, this is God's word. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you so much this morning for your word. A light unto our path, Lord. And today, God, I want to ask that you would speak through your word. It'd be so lame for us to all gather here together today and only get the good thoughts and the good ideas of Brian Buffin, Lord. What we need is a fresh revelation of your spirit, Lord. So we ask, God, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see what you have for us today. And would it all be for your glory and for your kingdom? In Jesus' name, amen. In March of 2019, a Christian cultural phenomenon happened on the social media platform Instagram. A millennial Christian anonymously created a profile called Preachers and Sneakers. Judging from your reaction, some of you have heard of it, but if you don't know what Preachers and Sneakers is, it's an Instagram profile where they take uh, photographs of uh, famous preachers, celebrity preachers, delivering sermons on Sunday, and then next to that photograph, there is a screenshot from a website that shows how much their shoes are worth. 
Let me tell you, it is absolutely jaw-dropping how expensive some of these shoes are. I mean, we are talking super rare, ultra-exclusive, limited-edition shoes that would often fetch two, three, sometimes $4,000 on the open market. And here's what's crazy. These aren't like televangelist, prosperity gospel preachers. These are people that you've probably heard of before and maybe even listened to. And shortly after this Preachers and Sneakers account was launched, a, a spinoff account emerged called Profits and Watches. And you can see where I'm going with this, right? This account depicted these same preachers wearing uh, diamond-studded, gold-plated Rolex watches that often cost upwards of $10,000. There was a, one photograph of a famous worship leader, I, I won't say his name, but he was depicted wearing a watch that literally cost more than my house. And I know what you're all thinking right now. You're thinking, Brian, you have sneakers on. How much did you pay for those sneakers? And the answer is $45 up the street at Burlington Coat Factory, okay? Don't trip out. I saw some of you pull out your phones like you were going to get me onto the Preachers and Sneakers account. It's not going to happen, okay? $40 watch, by the way, also. Just to clear the air about that, all right? But as these accounts gained a viral following, this debate began to erupt on social media about whether or not these pastors should be wearing these excessive, uh, ultra-expensive shoes, watches, clothing, accessories, you name it. And some people were outraged and appalled, right? They were like, this is complete hypocrisy. How on earth can a pastor be wearing these expensive, excessive items and preach Jesus from the pulpit. But then there was another group of people who said, who cares what they're wearing? They're preaching the good news of the gospel. People are getting rescued. Who cares if they're wearing $2,000 shoes and a matching $600 Gucci belt, which, by the way, is a real thing. <laughs> and so this very heated conversation began to rage back and forth on social media, and even celebrities and major news publications like Esquire and the New York Times began to weigh into the conversation. And all of the debate could really be distilled down to one core question. And that question is, as Christians, does it matter what we wear? Does what we wear have any significance to our spiritual life? In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is addressing a similar question, except Paul is not talking about wearing sneakers or watches or accessories. Paul is talking about wearing an identity. And I believe that what Paul is saying in our text this morning is that when it comes to the identity that we put on, what we wear matters. Throughout chapter 4, Paul is trying to get the Ephesian church to understand what it means to live a life worthy of, a, of the calling that God had placed on their lives. That's kind of the thesis statement of the entire fourth chapter of Ephesians. And Paul lays this purpose out in the first verse. He says, Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. And it's interesting, the word that Paul uses for called in verse 1 is this word kaleo, which means to be given a name. 
So what Paul is saying here, he's saying, I urge you to live a life worthy of the name that God has given you. This isn't merely an exhortation to do better, but rather to live into the identity, the name that they had been given in Christ. And that's important for us to understand. Because the majority of chapter 4 is comprised of these do statements or imperatives. Throughout the chapter, Paul is telling the church, don't do this, do this. Don't be like this, be like this instead. Don't let yourselves be blown about by every wind of teaching, but rather speak the truth in love. This is the rhythm and flow that Paul is writing in in this chapter. But if we've learned anything from the book of Ephesians, it's that our Christian experience goes far deeper than a mere list of do's and don'ts. There's something deeper at play in the life of the Christian. And in order to convey this deeper meaning, Paul introduces this metaphor of the exchanging of clothing or garments. These garments, they represent two opposing selves. Some other translations would use the word nature. He's talking about the old self and the new self. And the Greek word that Paul uses for self or nature is this word called anthropos. Uh, it means, literally translated, means humanity. And that's where we get the word anthropology, not the store, the study of humanity. We see a glimpse of the old self in verse 17. We looked at that last week. And here's how Paul describes the old nature he says, it's darkened, it's excluded. It's ignorant, it's hard-hearted, it's callous, promiscuous, and impure. He's not mincing words when it comes to describing the old self. And specifically, Paul is referencing the lifestyle of the Gentiles, anyone who is not a Jew. And that's important because the Ephesian church was perhaps the most Gentilian church uh, in all of Rome. See, Ephesus was a bustling port city, which made it one of the most ethnically, culturally, and spiritually diverse communities in all of the Roman Empire. So logically, there have been a lot of Gentiles in the Ephesian church. So in essence, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, let me remind you of who you were. This is what your life used to look like. Darkness, exclusion, ignorance, all of these things used to define you. But as a Christ follower, that's not who you are. He says in verse 20, that's not how you learned about the Messiah, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him because the truth is in Jesus. Here Paul is pivoting from the old to the new. He says in verse 22, you took off self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. Other, trans, uh, other versions would translate it this way, take off your old self. And the verb that Paul uses for take off is this Greek verb, apotetheme, which literally means to put off from oneself. But here's what's interesting about this word apotetheme. Um, it's written in what's called the aorist tense. And in ancient Greek, the aorist tense denotes something that has already happened, but is still a future reality. The aorist tense is like already, but not yet. So here's what Paul is really saying in verse 22. He's saying, when you received Christ, your old corrupted identity was removed. Therefore, continue to remove it by allowing the spirit of your mind to be renewed. And I believe that those words are for us this morning. 
Because many of us struggle to live in this tension. Many of us go through life experiencing the same defeats, wallowing in the same spiritual disappointment, and no matter how hard we try, we cannot for the life of us figure out why nothing is changing. And I believe that Paul would say that perhaps the reason is because we're wearing an old identity. We are allowing something old to define us. Two of the most powerful letters in the English alphabet are the letters E and R. And the reason that they are so powerful is because when E and R are used together at the end of a, of a word, they have the power to transform a verb, an action, into a noun. And not just any noun, but a noun that describes a person. In other words, E and R have the power to take what someone does and turn it into who they are. Let me give you a few examples of this. My parents spent their uh, careers teaching students in the Ventura Unified School District. We would call each of them a teacher. Somebody who leads uh, a business or a group of people or an organization or even a country, we would call that person a leader. Somebody who fights for a living in mixed martial arts or boxing, we would call that person a fighter. Somebody who loves us deeply, intimately, and personally, we would call that person a lover. Here's the power of the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross, he removed the E and the R from your sin. When Jesus cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished on the cross, Jesus removed the power of sin to define your life. At Calvary, Jesus looked sin dead in the face, and he said, sin, you no longer have the authority or the ability to tell my people who they are. That's the power of the cross, that we are no longer defined by our sin, that we are now defined by his blood, by his righteousness, by his mercy, and by his grace. This is the good news of the gospel, not just that we are reconciled by the cross, but that we are redefined by it. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that sin itself is somehow magically eradicated from our lives, nor should we diminish or ignore the weight of sin in our lives. Sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal to God. In fact, sin is such a big deal to God that he sent his only son to die on a cross so that its power to define you might be broken. Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 6. He says, Your old self was crucified with Christ in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. Christian, this is your new self. This is your new nature, a nature no longer rooted in sin and sorrow, but in righteousness and redemption, an identity not corrupted by deceit, but conformed to the image of the living God. And the Apostle Paul is imploring us to put it on. In verse 24, Paul uses this Greek word, enduo. And the word enduo literally means to be plunged into a garment, and I love that picture of what God has done for us. Even when we couldn't finagle our way into a new identity, God 
through the power of the cross, dropped us into a new one. And again, here, Paul is using the aorist tense. So he's really saying, through the finished work of the cross, you have been plunged into a new identity, so therefore walk in it. This is the call of the Christian life. Now, this idea of exchanging identities is, is not a new one. God has a history throughout Scripture of changing the nature of His people. And often when God changes someone's nature, He also changes their name. We see this in Genesis with Abram. God changes the name of Abram, which means high father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And then He does the same thing with Sarai, Abram's wife. He says, Sarai, you are now going to be called Sarah, which means mother of nations. Just a few generations later, we see God change the name of Jacob. The word Jacob meant supplanter or trickster, which was a reflection of his old identity. Right? He had swindled his way into obtaining the birthright of his brother Esau. But then after wrestling with the Lord in the darkness, God changes his name to Israel. And Israel means having power with God. We see this happen in the New Testament. Jesus changes the name of Simon to Peter. It says in John uh, 142, Jesus looked at him and said, you are, the, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter or rock. In Scripture, God never changes someone's name because they deserve it or because their actions somehow warrant it. Both Abraham and Sarah were disobedient to the Lord. Jacob was a serial manipulator. Peter denied Jesus three times to save his own hide. God changes the name and nature of his people based on the identity that he sees in them. He saw that Abraham and Sarah would become father and mother to the nations. He saw the humility that would lead Jacob to repent before his brother Esau. And he saw the courage with which Peter would preach the gospel to the multitudes. Christian, Once your name was sinner. Once your name was wretched, unworthy, separated, forgotten. But at the cross, God said, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to give you a new garment. And it doesn't say sinner on it. It says beloved. It doesn't say wretched. It says righteous. It doesn't say hopeless. It says holy. It doesn't say forsaken, it says forgiven. God doesn't name you based on what you deserve. He names you based on what he has done. And he has done everything necessary to call you child. Do you believe that today? The reason that I ask is because there are so many Christians who show up to church every Sunday wearing the same old wretched clothes. We wear the same old label of sinner like a name tag, like, hello, my name is Sinner. It's nice to meet you. One of the phrases that I hear often in the church is, oh, I'm, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You ever heard that one? So I'm sure some of you probably even said those words before. I know I certainly have. But did you know that the phrase sinner saved by grace is not in the Bible? We have 450 English translations of the Bible, and the phrase sinner saved by grace is not found in any of them. 
We do see the, the phrase saved by grace. Paul says that earlier in Ephesians. He says it in Ephesians 2. He says, though we were, past tense, dead in our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. You have been saved by grace. You were dead. You are saved. There's a reason that sinners saved by grace is not in the Bible. It's because you are not a sinner saved by grace. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are a child saved by grace. To say that the Christian has been saved by grace and yet is still actively and presently labeled as sinner is to deny the power of the finished work of the cross. Imagine for a moment that you were walking down the street one day, perhaps here in downtown Ventura, and you encountered an old friend. And right away, you knew that something was not right. You see that their clothes are ripped and tattered and stained with dirt and sweat. And you approached that friend and you said, hey, today, I'm going to take you shopping. And you took that friend to Nordstrom or Macy's or wherever rich people shop. <laughs> and you bought them the most expensive outfit that you could afford, the perfect clothes. And you said to that friend, you said, I want you to have this outfit. You don't have to do anything to earn it. All you have to do is put it on. Can you imagine if you saw that same friend a few weeks later and they were wearing the same old, wretched, dirty clothes? You'd be heartbroken. That sounds ridiculous, but this is what we do all of the time with our identity. We are so focused on trying to get the stains out of our old rags that we become blind to the fact that we've been given robes of royalty. Charles Spurgeon once preached that the old man is not sent to the hospital to be healed. He is sent to the cross to die. As long as the old self lives, the new self will never be able to be fully adorned. In church, I believe that the Father's heart breaks when we, when we decide to wear anything other than the identity that he purchased for us on the cross, a nature that was bought at the highest price, a new self purchased with the blood of his own son, to put on anything less than Christ is to be held in bondage and slavery. Now, I think that most of us understand that we do have a new nature in Christ. But the problem often lies with how we appropriate that nature in our lives. And for many of us, our understanding looks something like this. I'm a sinner, and because Jesus paid my debt, I am now covered in his righteousness. Underneath, I'm still a sinner, I'm still wretched, I'm still unclean and unworthy, but now when the Father looks at me, what he sees is the righteousness of Christ. And don't get me wrong, that might be well-intentioned thinking, but I do not believe that that is the Father's heart for his children. Because God is after much more than a transaction, he's after transformation. We are not just sinners cloaked in righteousness, we are children clothed in redemption. God's plan for your sanctification is not just to put a band-aid of grace over your sin. 
He didn't send his son to the cross to die so that you could have a get-out-of-jail-free card from the community chest. God's desire is to transform every part of you from the inside out. Every fiber of your being transformed to look more and more like Jesus until the day he returns in glory. That's what Paul means when he says to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Because when God gets a hold of your life, he doesn't just cover you. He invades you. There's a lyric that we sing sometimes on Sunday mornings, it says, uh, Spirit, come and invade this place. And for the longest time, I thought that that meant like, Holy Spirit, come and invade the, the air in the room that I'm in right now. Like, come and invade the four walls that I'm standing in. But then I realized that the Holy Spirit doesn't invade rooms. He invades people. Like an army sent on a rescue mission... God invades the hearts and the minds of his children, leaving no stone or sin unturned in order that we might radiate the glorious image of God that we were destined to from the beginning. That's what it means to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And the question is, are we willing? Are we willing to let God invade our hearts? Are we really willing to let the spirit of our minds be renewed by the spirit of the living God? And if the answer to that question is no, then we will always turn back to our old garments. We'll always turn back to our old shame, our old fears, our old pain, our old brokenness, our old bitterness. But if we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, he will always point us to our new nature. I'm sure that many of you know that my wife, Elena, and I are new parents. Uh, our daughter, Leona, was born this past March, ironically, the same time that Preachers and Sneakers started. And the last time that I preached, I mentioned that I am an only child. I have only child syndrome, I believe is what I said. And not only am I an only child, but I am also part of a very small extended family. And on top of all that, I am the youngest in my extended family, which means that before our daughter was born, I had zero exposure to babies. Like, I never changed a diaper or an outfit or anything. I thought the swaddle was like a 90s dance move or something. <laughs> Just the thought of holding a baby was terrifying to me. I was like, I'm going to love your baby by not dropping your baby. That was my, like, whole attitude. And people would be like, hey... Can I, do you want to hold, hold my baby? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to drop your baby. That would be really bad. <laughs> my baby IQ is very low. So as you can probably imagine, the past seven months have been like baby boot camp for me. I have learned more about babies in the past seven months than I did in the previous 31 years of my life combined. Four milk, hind milk, sleep cycles, pacifier swaddling techniques, travel systems, rash cream, you name it. Like, I could write a 50-page dissertation on poop now. <laughs> it's incredible how much you learn as a new parent. And one of the things that I learned about very early on was this thing called new baby smell. I don't know if you know about new baby smell, but it's a thing. And like I said, I had, I had barely held any babies in my life up to this point. So 
I didn't really know anything about new baby smell until a few weeks after our daughter was born. A mom came up to me very hesitantly and inconspicuously, and she leaned in almost in a whisper. She was like, um, do you mind if I smell your baby? <laughs> Again, I have very little experience with babies, so I'm like, uh, sure. And she, she leans in, and she just takes a big old whiff of my daughter's hair, like, The satisfaction on her face was incredible. And funny enough, I was at Costco yesterday, and the same thing happened. Which, by the way, side note, if you want to have missional opportunities in your life, have a baby and then go to Costco. You will have so many interactions and opportunities to preach the good news because people are just constantly coming up to you like, your baby. There are people talking to my baby in Spanish. I don't even know what they're saying. I'm assuming that it's good. But this woman, she's like, can I touch your baby? And I said, sure. And she started touching her, and then she leaned in, took a big whiff. I was like, this is a thing. (laughs) And now all I do all the time is smell my kid. It's the best thing in the world. Like every time I hold her, I'm just constantly sniffing the top of her head. And it's not that she smells like anything in particular. She doesn't smell like flowers or the ocean or Chanel Number 5 or anything like that. She just smells like a brand new human. Christian, you have been given a new humanity, a new anthropos to wear. Your new nature is attractive. The new life that you have in Christ is fragrant to this world. Putting on the new self matters because your new nature doesn't just exist for you. Your new nature exists for the kingdom. And every time you make the choice to live in that nature, the kingdom of God advances a little further. Every time a parent says, today, I'm going to show my children what a a new life looks like by being long-suffering with them, the kingdom of God moves a little bit further. Every time a business owner says, today, I'm going to show my employees what a new life looks like by leading from a place of humility, the kingdom of God moves a little bit further. When a husband says, I'm going to show my wife what a new life looks like by loving her the way that Christ loved the church, the kingdom of God moves a little bit further. When a person in the body of Christ says, I'm going to demonstrate what a new life looks like by teaching kids about the gospel, the kingdom of God moves a little bit further. You know, often we ask the Lord to bring about revival in our city. We're like, Lord, send revival to our city by the power of your Holy Spirit. There's nothing wrong with praying that. But do you know what will bring about the biggest revival we've ever seen? The greatest revival will happen when everyday Christians like you and me make the decision to let our old nature die in order that we might walk in the nature that Jesus died for. When we allow the Spirit to invade, transform, and renew us into the glorious likeness of His image. We have to remember that God invades His people so that His kingdom can invade the earth. Until the world sees Jesus face to face in all of His glory, the world will see the glory of Jesus in all of His people. And that's why it matters what identity you put on. 
That's why it matters to wake up every morning and say, today, I'm going to put on my new nature. Today, I'm going to let the old self be crucified so that people can see Jesus in me, so that my spouse, my kids, my neighborhood can see the kingdom of heaven in me. God gave you a new identity so that the world could identify Jesus in you. You want to know how to glorify God in this life? Live in your new identity. Christian, he gets no glory from you being a sinner. He gets no glory from your old self. He gets all the glory from you being redeemed. So church, let's walk in redemption. Maybe this morning you're holding on to some old spiritual clothes, some old thought patterns that have kept you in bondage, some old fear maybe that's been paralyzing you from walking out in the calling that God has placed on your life. Maybe it's some old bitterness that's kept you from being able to maintain healthy relationships. Maybe it's some jealousy that's left you resentful of other people. Whatever it is, as we worship this morning, come to the foot of the cross and lay down those old garments that you might be plunged into a new one, a new nature created in the likeness and the glory of God's image. Amen? Lord, thank you that you make all things new. And that includes your beloved children. And I pray right now as we worship, as we come before the cross, Lord, that you would allow us by the power of your Holy Spirit to surrender our old garments to surrender our old ways of thinking, our old mindset, our old identity, and would you exchange it for the garments of glory that you purchased for us on the cross. I would be in error this morning if I didn't address the fact that there are some in this room today who still wear the identity of sinner because you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet. Paul says in verse 21 of our text, he says, assuming you heard about Jesus and were taught by him because the truth is in Jesus. Everything that Paul says after that is only true if we really know Jesus. There are some of you in this room who've never had a relationship with Jesus before. And there are probably also some of you in this room who know plenty about Jesus, but there's no relationship. You don't know him. Paul would say earlier in the book of Ephesians that apart from Christ, we are all called children of wrath. That apart from Christ, we all deserve to be labeled by our sin. But here's the good news today. You don't have to be. There's enough clothes to go around. God's desire is that none would perish, that all would come to everlasting life in Jesus. So if that resonates with you this morning, I want to ask something both of you. During the second set of worship, Come forward to the left and the right of the stage. There are some wonderful, lovely human beings that would love to pray for you and help you step into a new identity in Jesus Christ.
Communion is available up here at the front of the stage. Communion is an ancient practice, a symbol of the shed blood and the broken body of our Savior. And it's a reminder of how much your new nature costs. The carpets this morning are available to take a posture of humility and surrender. This is the place where old garments are laid down. Church, let us respond to Jesus this morning, the one who makes all things new, the one who gives us beauty for our ashes, a garment of praise for our heaviness, the oil of joy for our mourning. May we not leave this place without adorning ourselves with the glorious garment of new life made available to us in Jesus Christ. Amen.